0: My name is Trevor. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at uh, City Church, uh, so want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. I uh, want to tell you something. That sounded so insincere. I, for real, I'm glad you're here. Man, I just went through a script right there. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for that? That was ridiculous. No, The table wasn't there. It was all—it's just crazy. Uh, let's start over. Good morning. Um, uh, I want to tell you about something before I get started. Uh, today that you might be interested in. Next week after our 11 o'clock service here, we're having uh, what we call the Know the City Lunch. Okay, so this is just a time where you come in, some of our community groups provide you with a meal, and so you get uh, home cooking. There's no G on that. You get home cooking, and uh, we will talk a little bit. You'll have the chance to interact with and talk with some of uh, the covenant members of our church. Um, And it's just kind of an introduction. If you want to know more, go a little bit deeper with who we are as a church, or be a part of our church, this is a great first step um, to explore. What do I need to do next? And what do you guys believe? You can come, uh, bring your questions, uh, put me on the spot, whatever you want to do. But that is next week after the 11 o'clock service. Uh, You just stay, hang around here, we'll set up tables, and we will eat and talk and uh, pray and love, all right? All right. That was a book or a movie or something. All right, let's, um, let's do a little bit of prayer and love right now, shall we? Let's pray, then we'll love. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, I don't know every person in this room, but I do know that what I am about to preach has affected or is affecting or will affect every single person in this room. So... Like the song just said, wherever we go, wherever we've been, I pray that you will open ears and hearts to hear this. There's a lot, Father, in this passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about that will offend, that will hurt. But we know, God, that there's the kind of hurt that's meant to destroy us, and there's the kind of hurt that we experience in surgery a skillful, careful precision that's intended to remove a cancer from us so that we can heal and be made whole. And I pray that's the kind of cut that your word delivers today. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Amen. Ooh, it's going to get cozy there for a minute. Um, I want to start today with two of billboards top 10 songs this week so this week i read the lyrics of every single top 10 billboard song and was ridiculously disturbed um these are uh, probably the songs that you or your kids are singing along with on the radio uh these are the songs that we are as a country are downloading and pumping into our heads and hearts okay so uh let me give you some of these lyrics here's um By the way, I already sound like like a fundamentalist preacher already, you know, that songs are bad, so try try to weed that out and just listen. Here's Maroon 5's Animals. You can find, here we go, yeah, they'll be on screen. You can find other fish in the sea. You can pretend it's meant to be, but you can't stay away from me. I can still hear you making that sound, taking me down, rolling on the ground. You can pretend that it was me, but no, baby, I'm praying on you tonight. I don't listen to that song, I just did for research, all right? <laughs> Hunt you down, eat you alive, just like animals. Now, here's the translation of that We are so physically and sexually attracted to one another that the raw animal sexual desire in you will never be satisfied by anyone other than me. Oh, it's a very humble song. So, give into me sexually. Because the stud you see in front of you is your only path to happiness. All right? Here's one more. This is uh, Tuve Luz. That's how you pronounce it. Research it. She's Swedish. Uh, I know some of y'all been Tove Lo's. That sounds like Tone Loke, who also wrote a terrible song. Several of them. Uh, but here's Tuve Luz Habits, or Stay High. Okay? Now, I've removed the oos for the purpose of flow. All right? This is what she says. You're gone, and I got to stay. High all the time to keep you off my mind. Spend my days locked in a haze trying to forget you, babe. I fall back down. Gotta stay high all my life to forget I'm missing you. Pick up daddies at the playground, how I spend my daytime. Loosen up the frown, make them feel alive. Staying in my play pretend where the fun ain't got no end. Can't go home alone again. Need someone to numb the pain. Here's a translation of that song. I believed you, Maroon 5, when you said I'd never get over you. In fact, I can't even live my life anymore. I have to intoxicate myself, either with drugs or having sex with someone else. In fact, finding married men, daddies at the playground, and giving them sex is a way for a brief moment, I can find someone that values me. With no regard to how I'm using them, by the way. You were right. I'm worthless without you, Adam Levine. So I'll keep using other people sexually to cope with the pain of you using me. That's what that song says. That's what it's about. So here's a question. Come on, Trev. They're just songs. My question is, are they really just songs? Or do we actually believe those messages? That's why we're singing them. Do most of us think that physical attraction is the most important thing about a relationship or at least the first thing you should consider before dating someone? And I think Tinder answers that question for us. Tinder is a smartphone app that uh, you pull up on your phone and it locates people near you and it shows you their uh, picture with a few words of biographical information if you care to read about the person. It's a dating app. And here's the way it works. If you like the person's picture that's given to you there on your um, smartphone, you simply swipe them to the right. If If you like a person, ooh, I like that, all right, swipe to the right then if the person that you so graciously accepted also sees your picture and then swipes you to the right into the promised land of potential relationship, then you get to begin a conversation to decide if you'd like to meet up with that person. However, if you do not like the person picture that's been put in front of your majesty, like an angry French monarch, you simply swipe them away to the left, right? You know, with the goats, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what the Huffington Post said, that conservative Christian publication, right? Here's what the Huffington Post said about Tinder. That was a joke, by the way, of sarcasm. I don't know if you detected that or not. Um, Here's what the Huffington Post said about Tinder. i simply give that to you to know, I'm not pulling this from, you know, some fundamentalist preacher, right-wing everything's bad out there, we're good in here. That's not where this comes from. This comes from the Huffington Post. This is what they say. Tinder is like the Facebook before it became Facebook, a pure, unadulterated means of dissecting people's physical appearances with no extra details to slow down the judging process. You know, like Facebook gives you with, you know, likes or dislikes or books they've read, things like that. Tinder makes the scrutiny even more streamlined and doesn't try to disguise it, making the app wildly, populate, wildly popular and intoxicatingly enjoyable. Tinder's popularity both underscores and feeds an obsession with constant acknowledgement and approval. It suggests we're all but starving, like animals, for likes, eager. For affirmation, and will no doubt be suffering even more acute tenderitis in our push to figure out which strangers and how many think we're hot. In other words, Tinder allows me to screen everyone for sex appeal before I find out anything else about them. And every time I find someone that thinks I'm hot, I get all the affirmation I've been looking for without the risk of first actually being in a relationship with them. Tinder, you know what Tinder is? It's a smartphone version of your best friend in middle school. Y'all you know? Your wingman, your wing lady? That's what it is. You know, you're at the school dance in middle school and you send your best friend across the room to ask your crush's best friend if she will ask your crush, you know, if she likes you or he likes you. But you tell your wingman, don't say anything about me liking her until you hear from her first that she likes me. You know, you're in middle school in your room. You're like, what's wrong with that? That totally makes sense, right? Tinder gives you that kind of security. So you can always tell yourself that if someone you swipe to the right never contacts you, that they simply just never saw your picture in front of them. It's not that you've been rejected, you tell yourself. It's just that they didn't have the opportunity to judge me for my looks because I look good. Right? And look, and we need that comfort, don't we? We need that comfort. Because we're all afraid of being rejected. But what if you have been swiped to the left? What if you have been rejected over and over and over because of the way you look? Because you don't have a six-pack or an hourglass figure or any other of our culture's standards for superficial beauty see some of you today are like Adam Levine from Maroon 5 you can tell your crush you can find other fish in the sea you can pretend it's meant to be but you can't stay away from me baby I'm praying on you tonight because you want me like an animal look at these guns right some of you can say that you're the stud you're the quarterback you're the cheerleader the beauty queen you never had trouble getting a date And so when you got the Tinder app, you knew people would be swiping you to the right. You've always been accepted because of your attractive qualities, but still, for some reason, you're not happy. You aren't settled. You you aren't peaceful. And even the person you're dating now, the, the relationship is so insecure, they could leave you tomorrow and you're afraid of that. Even though your looks have always seemed to get you what you want, you're not even sure about what you want anymore. Then there are those of you that are like Tuve Lu, right? You've been rejected over and over and over, and it's broken you. All of that rejection has taken its toll on you. And you're tired of being rejected. And whether you've distracted yourself by getting high or having sex with whoever will take you or simply busied yourself with a school or a career or hobbies or something else, you know that you spend your days locked in a haze, staying in your, in your play pretend. You can't go home alone again. You need someone to numb the pain, and maybe tender is just the way that you stay high all the time because it is intoxicating to finally reject someone else based on their looks. So you've been swiped to the left too many times, and frankly, it just feels good to get on Tinder and do it to somebody else. And, and no hurt, right? No harm. They don't know you're rejecting them. No, I'm not here to preach against a phone app. I know some of you probably have it, and you, you won't punch me in the face right now. We'll do that later, all right? I'm not not even here to preach against Maroon 5 or Tuve Lu or or Billboard's Top 100. I'm here because I love you. I'm here because you're my family. You're my brothers and sisters, and you're the church that the Lord has called me to lovingly serve and shepherd and lead. And for that reason, today, I'm going to propose a different way, perhaps a different approach for you to dating to relationships a different approach to to the way that you even think about the marriage that you are in i'm going to show you today why it is that your heart keeps breaking and i'm going to show you how to make it stop see every single one of us is we're all hardwired because we're created in the image of god we're all hardwired with the desire to be loved because god created us to be loved to be accepted And that's why you were made for relationships. You were made for the the difficult things about relationships and the good things about relationships. The problem is, today, our first and sometimes only criteria for what is going to make a good relationship is sexual attraction. That's my first criteria. How do they look? Oh, no, 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 not that person. And now, we have in the palm of our hand the technology to deliver us from the hard work of relationships... Except for the ones that meet our sex drive, which, by the way, has been ridiculously warped by our music, by our media, and by our pornography. Why do I constantly hear guys saying this to me? I mean, this is uh, this is said to be been said to me over and over and over about another girl. Guys constantly saying it, girls too. By the way, this is not just guys. I think of her as a friend, or I think of him as a friend. And that's given to me as a reason not to pursue a person in a relationship. As if friendship is a ridiculous thing to build a marriage on. I mean, when you tell me that, that's like, that's every reason in the world to go after her, to go after him. But see, for us, there always, friendship is great, but there always has to be a spark, doesn't there? It's funny, we keep entering into relationships based on these superficial sparks instead of the unquenchable fire of promise and commitment. No wonder so many of our marriages then go up in smoke. So here is the message that many of us are believing. When you feel empty, when you feel unloved, when you feel rejected, when you feel cast aside, when you feel swiped to the left, all you need to do is find the one and criteria numero uno is looks. To be saved from your hell of loneliness and rejection, you just need to find your soulmate who definitely is going to have to look good, whatever your definition of looking good is. So round and round we go. For some of us, it's this constant state of breaking up and getting back together again. We're divorcing and remarrying. Others jump into commitment and marriage thinking that you have found the one that your soul is made for, mainly because they take a good picture with you, only to find that all the physical attraction, and it does, eventually wears off and you don't know what you're left with anymore because you based everything on a spark and then there's no fire. So what do we do? We chalk it up to falling out of love and what you really mean is your profile pic doesn't excite me the way it did when I found you. And all of this heartbreak leads us either to naivete where we just, you know, get back out there because there are plenty more fish in the sea, but we just keep doing the same stupid thing. We keep breaking in the same cyclical way. Or it leads to this deep kind of cynicism where we completely write off the idea of love and marriage and we begin to believe that if there is happiness, if it does exist at all, it's just out of reach and it can never quite be achieved, perhaps because we just don't look good enough. I want you to know that there is a way out of this insanity. And that's why you need to understand a man named Jacob and the women he swiped to the left and swiped to the right. All right, so we're going to talk about Jacob today. And there are two things that you need to know about Jacob before we read about him. The first thing you need to know about Jacob is something that probably a lot of you can identify with. Jacob had a terrible dad or a terrible relationship with his dad. His dad swiped him to the left, and it messed him up. See, Jacob's dad, Isaac, loved uh, Jacob's twin brother, Esau, more than he loved Jacob. See, Esau, the firstborn, which meant a lot in that culture, Esau had everything going right for him. Esau was the man's man. He was hairy, and he killed things that were delicious to eat. He looked the part. Jacob, on the other hand, wrote poetry and pinned recipes on Pinterest and used moisturizer. He was everything that his culture's... I'm just trying to give you a a current cultural definition of what a man is. So in in his culture, he was everything a man wasn't. And Esau was everything a man is. So since Esau was more of what that role looked like for his dad, he could throw a football, he could catch a baseball, Jacob was rejected by his father for the better-looking Esau. And so Jacob spent his whole life trying to get his dad to say something good about him. Trying to get his dad to love him. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know about Jacob before we get to this text is that his name, Jacob's very name, means deceiver. It means swindler. It means cheater. And that kept getting Jacob in trouble. Jacob spent his life deceiving people to get what he thought would make up for the love that he never got from his dad. So he cheated his brother Esau out of the family inheritance. Then he deceived his blind and dying dad by changing his looks he dressed up in goat hair when his dad was on his deathbed. He put goat hair on him because Esau was hairy. And he went into a dark tent. That his, and, he, and so his dad thought that he was Esau. So his dad, Isaac, gave Jacob the blessing, the good word about his future. The one that he had craved all his life. But still, he knew that word was intended for Esau. But he stole it by deceiving his father by changing his appearance even for a blind man. I don't even have time, time to preach three hours on that, but I could. And so what do you think happened? Well, you know, you know what happens when you trick people, when you deceive people, and they find out every time you call Comcast. <laughs> I'm sorry if you were. I, I had a thing with Comcast this week. <laughs> he hated him. So now his twin brother hates him. And his twin brother said, I'm going to murder you. And see, just another person that swiped Jacob to the left. So Jacob, what do you do when somebody says they're going to murder you? Well, fight or flight. And so what do you think he did? Well, he flew. Jacob ran. And when he did, he also lost the only person in his life who ever really deeply loved him, his mama but while he was broke and alone and rejected sleeping in the middle of the desert on a rock god shows up to jacob in a dream and he tells jacob believe it or not god says i'm with you no matter what believe it or not i love you believe it or not i'm not going to leave you and here's the bottom line all of Jacob's life he had learned that he had to earn love that you had to make yourself lovable by showing people what they wanted to see even if that meant deception and then God shows up when when Jacob has absolutely nothing to offer when he's completely exposed for the deceiver and the fraud and the unlovable person that he is God shows up to a lonely unwanted penniless cheater in the desert and God says I love you anyway Jacob will you trust me but in typical human fashion that wasn't enough for Jacob because Jacob needed someone to accept him another person right he needed the intoxication of a beautiful woman telling him he was worth something he needed to prove his ability to be a stud so Jacob continues his search and he winds up running to his uncle Laban's house and man it sounds a lot like Maroon Five, and Tuve lu and Tender. So here we go. We're going to be in Genesis 29 today. Genesis 29. Uh, we'll be starting verse 15 and go all the way through 35. So I'll read it up front and then walk through and try to show you some things. Um, that are happening in these passages. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those from us. Uh, They are at the back table. Um, Additionally, I think we still have some of the stories of people in our church, covenant members of our church, who have some kind of sexual brokenness in their past or in their present. And there's testimonies of how the Lord brought them through that. Okay so those are free for you or if you want to pay $5 for those little books you can to reimburse us you got a five spot on you put in that bucket that table right back there uh, but please take those we don't want any left at the end of the series and and we're praying through the middle uh, through the remainder of this series that God will minister to you even through th- some of the stories of people in our church so here we go Genesis 29 uh, starting in verse 15. Then Laban, this is his uncle, said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? So he goes to work for his uncle Laban, and Laban feels kind of guilty, I suppose, and says, let me pay you for this. Now, Laban had two daughters. <coughs> Excuse me. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years. You don't have to pay me a dime. All you got to do is give me your younger daughter, Rachel, in marriage. Laban said, well, I guess it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man, even though she's your cousin. No, that was, it was actually a turn-on back then, all right? Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days. Isn't that, isn't that lovely? Seven years, oh, it was just a few days, like floating on air. No big deal. Just sir, sir, um, all right, seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, time's up, I did it. Give me my wife that I may have sex with her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, not Rachel. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not done so. I picture him smoking a cigar while he's doing this. Just calmly. Calmly. Not done so in our country, young man, to give the younger before the firstborn. So complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and he completed the week. He worked for seven years. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into or had sex with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time finally my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said this time. I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. That's the word of the Lord. Let's dig in. The first thing that we learn from Jacob here is that almost every promised Savior is a veiled disappointment. Almost every promised Savior is a veiled disappointment. See, the cycle that all of us get into of putting our heart on the line and then having it crushed and then picking it up and dusting it off and going back out there again, it's, it's maddening. It's like we think if we just you know, tweak what we did last time, I said tweak, not twerk. we think we just tweak what we did last time, things will turn out to be different, Right? And that's exactly what you see Jacob do here. For years, Jacob wanted his dad's love, but he could never get it. So, after being swiped away to the left by his dad and swiped away to the left by his brother, he now thinks his broken heart will be saved if he can just get the lovely Rachel to swipe him right. Now, There are two things that really show us how desperate Jacob is here. First, did you see how long Jacob was willing to work for Laban in order to get permission to marry Rachel? Because this is key. Seven years. You you ever meet anybody that you were like, man, I'd do seven years or whatever to get with that? You you ever said that to yourself? That's what he's saying. And eventually, it even turns into 14 years. Now, Here's what you need to know about that because you're like, wow, seven years. Okay, that sounds like a long time. But this is this is. I, I want to show you how crazy, desperate he is here. And remember, remember, I told you or the scripture told us that we we've been looking through this whole series that money and sex have this weird kind of way that they all get tangled up together, and it happens here yet again. Um, at this time uh, I ain't saying it right, I'm saying it's the way it, it was, all right at this time, in order to marry a girl, you had to pay her dad somewhere between 30 and forty shekels. I know right? No um, 30 and 40 shekels. all right So perspective, so we can translate that into to what that looks like. a monthly wage at this time was about one.5 shekels. So you work for a month, you get a shekel and a half. which means realistically. Jacob is paying more than triple to Laban what he should be paying to have Rachel's hand in it. Three times. He doesn't even question it. I mean, that's what he, that's what he offers. Three times as much. Because, didn't I tell you? The, the, even the greediest people, and Jacob was greedy. He was a deceiver. He always went after everything. He stole the inheritance from his brother. But any time, any time, You start taking off clothes, boy, people get generous. Wallets open, ooh, that's what I want, because that's the way lust works. Well, that's where Jacob is right here. Because Jacob is so desperate for love, and he thinks the beautiful Rachel will give him everything his heart has been missing. So he's willing to work for her. He's willing to do what's required and more. And notice, look, I want you to see this, okay? Because some of you may have been sitting through this series and, and, and saying, oh, well, I'm a virgin, I'm waiting until I get married to have sex, and so I'm doing everything the way the Bible says I should do it, and so I'm good. I really don't have to listen, except I just need to invite my friends who are worldly, right? But look at this. Jacob is doing this the right way. He's not having sex with her before marriage. He's willing to do everything it takes to get married to have sex with her. He's willing to wait seven years if need be. This time, 14. But listen, just because you wait for marriage to have sex doesn't mean you are approaching dating and marriage the right way. See, the other thing that shows up is how desperate Jacob is in what he says to Laban after the first seven years of work are up. And I hope you notice that the narrator wants to, wants to be very clear. He's making a very clear point about the difference in Rachel and Leah. And look, look what he says. He, he, he wants you to know that Rachel is a good-looking woman. Verse 17, it says, She was beautiful in form and appearance. That, that means that, that her body and her face We're good looking. That's what form and appearance means. She had the body. She had the face. In other words, Jacob is swiping hard to the right, thinking, finally, I've met my endless love. Right? That's what he's thinking. Jacob was captivated and hypnotized by Rachel's good looks. And that results in a line that commentators for centuries have been trying to explain away because it is so crass and it is so out of place for this culture. Verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, this is about his daughter. You understand this? This is about his daughter. Give me my wife, your daughter, that I may have sex with her because I've done what I needed to do. I mean, can you imagine that, Dad? Dad? I mean, wedding off right there, I don't care if you work seven years. That is not how you're going to treat my daughter. See, Jacob, in his desperation to satisfy a deep longing in his soul that he thinks will be quenched by marrying and having sex with a beautiful woman, even though he's doing it the right way says to his future father-in-law, I've paid my wages, I earned your daughter, now give her to me so that I can have sex with her. Listen, some of you are like Jacob. You're willing to work for the love or the looks that you think will save you. Some, you. some of you work for it by actually being a virgin, and you think if you can keep a holy enough lifestyle as a single person, then you deserve a good-looking woman or a hot guy to marry and have passionate sex with them five times a week. So you've got this idea of the way the person needs to look if they are going to have a chance with you. You aren't interested really in serving another woman or serving another man except for the one that meets your beauty standards, standards that have probably in some way been warped by pornography or novels or Hardy's commercials or pop songs. And at the end of the day, the reason you've abstained from sex outside of marriage is because you believe it's going to pay off for you sexually later and you are just as lust-ridden as the guy sleeping with a girl every night or the girl sleeping with a guy every night. And that begs the question, who exactly in all of your virginity have you been worshiping? What exactly do you think saves you Now back to the story, even though Jacob says to his father-in-law, even though what he says is incredibly offensive and objectifying toward his daughter, don't you find it odd that Laban kind of brushes over it and plays it cool? I mean, he doesn't have the kind of reaction that probably you or I would have if that was said to one of our daughters, because Leah has always been a problem for Laban. See, Laban's oldest daughter, Leah, well, the the scripture is very clear to make the point that she was not as attractive as Rachel. In fact, in verse 17, when it says that Leah's eyes were weak, it most likely meant that she was cross-eyed or had a lazy eye or something was going on with her eyes that made her unattractive, a unibrow perhaps, all right? Whatever it was, the point is, because it's put in comparison with Rachel's good looks, it's not that Leah couldn't see. That's not the point. The point is, is that Rachel was beautiful, and Leah was ugly. Whatever it was, every single time Leah picked the phone up or answered the door, it was always for Rachel, her little sis. Rachel had dates every weekend. Her calendar was full. Leah had nothing. Nobody's looking at Leah. They always swipe to the right for Rachel, and they always swipe to the left for Leah. In fact, even the first letters of their names, right, are R and L. I didn't make it up. <laughs> Laban, look, Laban, who we find out later, and here it is, here's more, money and, and sex and our brokenness all combined. Look at this. Laban, we will find out later, constantly has his mind on his money and his money on his mind, and he knows that if he doesn't marry Leah off, that she will constantly be a drain on his bottom line, and so Jacob who was the perfect sucker because he's so desperate to marry his ugly daughter off and to get the cash he wanted for her, that's why he remains calm. That's why he says, okay, you can insult my daughter like that. Why? Because I'm going to get cash for you, and this is going to be better on my bottom line later. Once again, even Leah's own father is swiping her to the left. Jacob's father swiped her to the left. I mean, there's so much left swiping going on based on the way people appear in this, it's ridiculous. So Laban sets up this elaborate scheme to trick Jacob into marrying Leah. Now, I know you're thinking, how in the world do you accidentally marry the wrong person? In this day and age, they didn't go to Vegas, but some of the same things happened. Because it's not that difficult with the customs of uh, the wedding in, in this day, all right? See, the bride would be heavily veiled all through the wedding day, from the ceremony all the way to the feast that would go all into the evening and last for hours, okay? So then, after drinking for several hours, the couple would go into a dark tent with no lights where they would then consummate the marriage. So you can imagine being a little bit tipsy or, or just flat-out drunk, and going into a tent with no lights where someone's been veiled all the time, and if you're just so stinking hungry for sex, you're probably not looking that much at the face. That's how he marries the wrong person. And so somewhere along the way, Laban puts Leah in the wedding dress and walks her down the aisle, and Jacob is none the wiser until morning. And in not morning often when we're exposed to what our lust has done to us? in not morning often when we come to our senses? In this beautifully sad, poetic verse of Scripture, I think, think it would be great to memorize this verse of Scripture. All of the disappointment that you and I have ever known is summarized in these eight little words. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. In the morning, after being intoxicated with sex appeal, when you come to your senses, the Rachel that you thought was going to save you is exposed as the Leah you were trying to avoid all along. And listen, this is bigger than just relationships. This is the story of our cosmic disappointment that we were created to only be satisfied by knowing and worshiping God. Instead, because we don't think God exists or we don't really trust him or like Jacob, even after he has clearly come to us and loved us and shown himself to us, we still just can't believe that all the love and all the approval and all the joy that life has to offer is actually wrapped up in knowing God. So we look to a beautiful woman, a handsome man, a six-pack, a nice rear end, a soulmate to give us that love, to give us that satisfaction. we just need the right person to tell us that they love us so we're all asking ourselves what must i do to be saved to be saved from my loneliness to be saved from my rejection to be saved from my fear of failure to be saved from the glares of others that would see me as unlovable as ugly as repulsive what must i finally do to be swiped to the right and that's why i tell you tinder is a perfect app for that no risk, only approval. So the pleasure we think we will get out of someone sexy, for that, we go to work. We buy clothes to look just right. We work hard at the gym to catch the eye of that other person. Or maybe you're already married to him, and you know you've got to keep up appearances, or he's going to take off, or she's going to take off. That's not, that's not a covenant. It's a contract. As long as you look good, I'll stay. We're all, we're all working so hard and prettying ourselves up for that Rachel that will make seven years of work seem like a couple of days. Now, I'm not saying the problem is clothes or working out. I'm not saying it's phone apps or songs. The problem comes when you think that your soul's deepest longing will be satisfied or met by that person, that he or she will finally completely, uh, complete you, like what, like what you feel that you're missing out on in life will all be supplied if you can just get that other beautiful, sexy person to notice you, to say, I love you, or I'll sleep with you, or I'll marry you. And I want to tell you that this is not a Christian or non-Christian thing. This is not a religious or non-religious thing. This is a human thing. All of our hope for rescue and salvation is based on this intoxication with another person that we need to look a certain way. But we keep going to bed drunk with the hope of Rachel, but waking up to the sober disappointment of Leah. But we just jump right back in the cycle. All of our good-looking saviors are leaving us disappointed, disillusioned, skeptical, and just plain hopeless. And it's, it, it, this is what I call relationship idolatry. It's looking for what you can only find in God and trying to find it in another person. But see, you have a longing for something deeper, something cosmic, something divine, because you are made for God, not for cheap substitutes for God. And so just like when you go to Mickey D's and you eat cheap substitutes for food, your body is never really satisfied by that, even though in the moment you're like, this is good. When you chase after cheap substitutes for God, even though in the moment you're saying, this is good, your soul will never be satisfied. And when you, listen, when you finally admit that and get out of the cycle and the circle. when you finally admit that all along you've had the wrong idea about what saves you, about what satisfies you, that's when you're going to begin to break the cycle. That's when you will have done what the Bible calls repentance. It means that you're turning away from your good-looking but unsatisfying idols because you realize they can't hold the weight of your soul. And then you begin to look for salvation in God himself. Now, I know that it sounds spiritual and maybe hopeful, but I'm here to tell you it's not that cut and dry. It's not that easy. See, your sexy pursuit of relationships has more casualties than just you. Relationship idolatry is like a nuclear bomb, and the ones who are closest to ground zero when it goes off are the ones who get the biggest dose of the fallout and then they become radioactive bombs ready to go off in someone else's life ready to explode in disappointment and disillusionment in someone else's life. See relationship idolatry is contagious and it's enslaving. Let me show you. Look at the moment. Look at the moment that Jacob goes to confront Laban, right? After he finds out that Laban has tricked him into marrying Leah, watch what happens. You find it odd that after Laban tells Jacob, right, that he's that he's going to have to put in another seven years' work. This is not seven days. This is not this is not eight more hours. This is another seven years to get what you thought. Can you imagine that? I'm almost there. I mean, he had to be with a calendar, like scratching off the days. Uh, you know, he had the picture of Rachel drawn up. He was like the heart around it scratching off the days, And then there it is, and there he is, and he wakes up, and he goes to Laban, and he says, what have you done? Why have you tricked me? And then Laban gives him this lying about, I've never smoked a cigar, I'm going to kiss you. I don't know how you hold one. But Laban just looks at him calmly, and says, that's not how things are done around these parts with the firstborn. You, you wonder why Jacob didn't say, I don't think so, pops, uncle. You go ahead and give me Rachel because we had a deal and this has been seven years coming. I mean, doesn't he come into this angry? How does he just nod his head and go, all right, another seven years, guys to go back out to the field. How does he do that? He's got to be sexually frustrated, right? All this pin-up stuff. Why doesn't he say, no, 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 no. You give me Rachel. Because remember what he said when he went to him the first time? Hey, I've worked my seven years. Give me your daughter so I can have sex with her. And all that goes away. That's mysterious. That's weird, which means we better look into it. Now, quick caveat for some of you. I know it may not be all of you, but some of you. You're seeing, you know, whenever polygamy comes up in the Bible, which is what's happening here, there are always those who say, see, this is why I don't like the Bible. We've evolved from this. How can you follow a book that condones polygamy? Even though we're almost there as a culture now, so maybe it's not that big a deal anymore. But listen, you, you know, you don't write the Daily News Journal to complain about the murder they reported. You don't pick up the Daily News Journal and go, I can't believe there was a murder, and call them up, and how dare you condone murder? No, they're, they're reporting on it. Okay, so this is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. Not only that, the Bible doesn't just remain neutral on the issue. Everywhere, everywhere, single, everywhere, polygamy is described in the Bible. It works out terribly for everybody involved. It is never lifted up as an ideal, but as sinful as something that breaks. And in fact, as you go through Scripture, you see the gospel start to undo polygamy. And and we're going to see how painful it is here. Here's the reason Jacob calms down and agrees to the next seven years of work for Rachel. Because it's very odd that he does. And here's why. It's because he has just realized the cycle he was trying to avoid was just perpetuating itself in him. And he's shocked, and he's stunned, and he can't do anything else but nod his head, okay. You know what he realizes? Jacob realizes that he has become his dad. The only person that he wanted to make sure that he never became. Even though he tried to run from his dad and his messed up family life, Jacob was enslaved to it because there was a relational idolatry. And relational idolatry is enslaving. He couldn't get away from it. See, because his dad had relied on Jacob's twin brother to be his savior, Jacob swiped to the left. Jacob was rejected. So Jacob tricked his father to get the blessing he thought would save him by changing his looks. But that didn't work. And so in one phrase, Laban cuts Jacob to the quick. He dissolves his anger and he shows him his sin and he shows him what he's become. You see it? Why then have you deceived me? Which is odd for a kid named the deceiver, right? You deceived me. You never see your own sin. You always see somebody else's. I'm the deceiver, but you deceived me, Laban. Pay up. No, no, no. He showed his sin. Laban said, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. All the memories come flooding back. Younger before the firstborn. That's what I did. That's what I did to my dad. See, when Jacob deceived his father, he went into a dark tent, veiled with goat's hair, to trick his dad into thinking he was someone his dad liked so that he could undermine the favoritism that his dad showed to his twin brother based on his appearance. And the tables have now turned. Now Laban has sent the older Leah into a dark tent, veiled to trick Jacob into thinking she was the younger, better-looking Rachel so that he could undermine the favoritism that Jacob had showed to Rachel. Jacob has become his dad, and he hates it. Now it's Jacob, the victim, who's been swiping people to the left so that he could have the relationship based on looks that he thought would save him. It's enslaving. Jacob has become the man who hurt him most deeply. And that realization has absolutely floored him. It's taken all the anger out, and he resolved to simply work another seven years to get what he wanted. Listen, you, you probably know this isn't it a sober reality not only to wake up to the way your false saviors have let you down, which is what happened to Jacob, but then to see that you have become everything you promised yourself you would never become. That's two big blows for Jacob. I didn't get what I wanted, and I haven't become who I thought I'd be. But see, that's the way sin works. As resolved as you are to never do this, or to never say this, or to never be like that person, or him, or her. You always become, in some way, what you hate. And that's what it means that sin is enslaving. Even though you want to break the cycle, you end up trapped and hurt by it, and practicing it yourself. And it's all contagious. Because not only does Isaac pass his sin on to his son Jacob, Jacob passes it to Leah and then they pass it on to their kids. Look at verse 30. Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So even after this realization of his own sin and the way he's been sinned against, even after this realization, Jacob doesn't wake up and say, time to change. That's not what he does. He just continues almost despondently chasing the very thing that's breaking him. And it shatters what's left of Leah's heart. And you know how Leah responds? Well, Leah catches it. She's not giving up on the idea that she can be loved. She's never really known what love is, but she has learned from Jacob, her husband, and from her dad, Laban, that if you can't get love with your beauty, you can get it by working hard. By your performance. So Leah does the one thing that she can do that her sister can't. She has kids. And that was very valuable in that time. In that day, one of the chief ways to be an ideal wife was to have children and specifically to have male children and lots of them. And so that's exactly what Leah puts her head down and she goes about working. And for each of these first three kids, she knows, she shows us exactly how she has put all of the stock in her being worth something, not in the fact that the the, the Lord loves her, but in the hope that Jacob will love her by looking at what she's given him. Ironically, by using God, she is pursuing her replacements for God. You see, in verse 31, we're told that it was God in an act of compassion towards Leah that opens her womb. God sees that Leah was hated. He goes to the ones that haven't been loved, and He puts His love on her, and He opens her womb as graciousness to her. But she doesn't return that back to worship for God she doesn't return that back to thanksgiving and gratitude instead she says thank you for that God now I can use it to get the relationship that really matters and see just like Jacob ignored God's love for him so Leah misses it too and just treats God like a vending machine. God's there to make sure that she gets happiness, to make sure that she gets the attention that she needs from Jacob, who is her real God. And we know this because of what she names her first three boys. Look in verse 32. She names the first one Reuben. You know what Reuben means? Corned beef. No. Reuben, Reuben means sea, a son. See, though she recognizes that God gave her the son, She's only thankful for Reuben because now she can go to Jacob and say, See, I've borne you a son. What has Rachel given you? Sure, she's pretty, but she's barren. Now will you love me more? Now can I be your favorite? The fact that God is the one who saw her and had compassion on her means nothing to her unless it makes Jacob swipe her to the right. But that didn't change things. Jacob still prefers Rachel. So, what does Leah do? Well, she tries to perform again. She's working her seven years. She tries again. Verse 33, she has Simeon. Simeon sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. And she says, again, God has heard that I am hated. And the sentiment here is that she thinks God is going to solve her heartbreak by giving her a second male son to take before Jacob, and then finally, Jacob will give her the love that saves her. She's not captivated by the fact that she has the ear of God unless it gives her Jacob's ear. And then the third son, Levi, which means denim. No, I'm kidding. Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached, so they must be skinny jeans. You see see what Leah says? Now, finally... After the third son, now my husband will be attached to me. In other words, all my life I've been outcast, alone, looked over, unloved, swiped left, and now, praise the Lord, I will finally get what will save me. Jacob will love me. It's happened again, and it just keeps happening. The cycle of overlooking God and elevating false saviors into his place, even though they look good keeps breaking our hearts, keeps driving people to say, I'll never be like that. But the cycle is alive and well in Jacob and Rachel, and it is alive and well in you and me. We are, more, we are not more evolved or enlightened today. We still think if we can get the eye of that person, if we can get the swipe right, if we can get the designation of good looking, if I can just get someone's eye, if I can just get someone's ear, if I can just get someone's attachment, if I can just get someone's acceptance, I'll finally be happy. Still don't believe it's contagious? When Rachel, the pretty one, finally has her kids later, one of those kids is named Joseph. You know what Leah's sons do to Joseph? They throw him into a pit so that their dad Jacob will pay more attention to them. I mean, it's just a cycle over and over and over. And not their perfect little brother Joseph. And, and maybe you were here a couple of weeks ago. You remember Judah? The one who has sex with his daughter-in-law in Genesis 38 and then tries to kill her? Yeah, he's one of Leah's kids too. The cycle keeps going passed on to the next generation to the next generation to the next generation because we don't think about the next generation we think about what we don't want to do with our sex do we we just think about us right now me When you are enslaved to a particular relationship or kind of relationship, listen to me, you aren't just hurting yourself. You are going to start a chain reaction of swiping people to the left, and they will then do the same thing to someone else, and it has the most devastating effect on your children. Unless... Unless you can find someone who will swipe you to the right, not based on your profile pic, but someone who will accept you even when he's seen the ugliest part of you, which doesn't happen to be your face or your body. What if the reason you have a deep longing for a relationship that will save you is because there is actually one out there? Jesus is the real Savior that makes the ugly beautiful. I want you to look at that last verse, verse 35. This is incredible. About Leah. And she conceived and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Period. Full stop. Stop. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. After three failed attempts at trying to get her husband loved, something changes with Leah. You see it? There's no condition this time when she names her son. She names her fourth son Judah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. And this time, there is no praise God, I have a son. Now maybe finally Jacob will love me. It stops. It's, It's full stop after this praise. This time is different. The cycle's broken. This time she says, even though my husband does not look at me differently, I will still praise the Lord because now, switch places. Now I'm seeing Jacob through the way that I understand my relationship with God instead of seeing God through the way that I understand my broken relationship with Jacob. And it switches. And see those four beautiful. Oh, man. You ought to memorize this too. Mem- look, memorize the whole Bible. These four beautiful words right at the end. Look at this. Then she ceased bearing. Isn't that the rest you've been looking for? There would be no more working, no more performing, no more striving to please a false savior that never comes through, no more makeup, no more push-up bras, no more high heels, no more constant working out and shirtless profile pics. Real saviors don't require you to work before they save you. Real saviors find those in need of salvation and come to the rescue. And that is what God did here. See, Leah doesn't use a generic name for God. She uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, the name that's given to his people in a marriage. A commitment from a perfect God to an imperfect woman. And that does it for Leah a promise that God makes to his people that despite our sin, despite our spiritual ugliness, that he would send a real savior, someone who would break the cycle for all of us, someone who would do away with all of the brokenness that our relational idolatry has caused. Leah, the one in this story who was swiped to the left by other men, swiped to the left by her husband, and swiped to the left by her father, all because she didn't look good realizes that she can't prove herself. She cannot make herself beautiful. She cannot work for it. Beauty has to be given to her from outside. And so she names her first son Judah because she realizes that God has seen her when she was ugly and loved her. She realizes that God has heard her even when her pleas were for other gods to save her. She realizes that God, under no obligation, has attached her himself, to her, even when she pushed him away and traded him in for Jacob. And she knows that somehow, way, a real Savior is coming. And so she puts all of her hope in him, and she ceases bearing. She lays down her burden. She finally rests. You know what one of Jesus' nicknames is in the Bible? The Lion of Judah. Because the Savior of the world would come from Judah. Even that messed up Judah that we read about. And don't you know that, didn't we read a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago? How even Judah himself realizes sin is confronted with it and falls down in repentance. From the child of a lonely, rejected, insignificant, unloved, ugly, left-swiped Leah, this lion of Judah, this Savior, this Savior, will come and you know what this lion of judah was more leah than he was rachel in one way look at this isaiah 53 he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he's ugly but jesus is the real savior He's a lot like Leah like that, but he is the better Rachel who doesn't turn into a Leah overnight. There's no disappointment with Jesus. When you wake up and you come to your senses in Jesus, you'll find he's better than you thought possible. And that's not just a line. Jesus is the better Jacob. While Jacob took on his father's sin and passed it on to his kids. Jesus, on the cross, took on his brothers' and sisters' sins and passed on his father's righteousness to all the unlovely ones that his father adopted by his love. Jesus saves us. He ends the cycle by taking the condemnation for our sin on himself so that we are no longer enslaved to sin and idolatry, But we can live in response to the God that loved us when we were unlovely and we can make the same kind of commitment and promise to another person that's not based on how they look but based on God's commitment to us. Jesus was swiped left for our ugliness so his father can swipe us to the right based on Jesus' beauty. And that, my friends, is the beautiful life your soul craves every time you have sex a life of sacrifice and service to others, but that's not what you're doing with your sex life. It's for you, not thinking about your children. And, and this sacrifice and service to others is not so you get something out of another person, but so they get something, so they see the love of God and be, that they'll be saved from their own relational idolatry and be adopted into the family of God. It's a life where those whom the world has counted out, become the ones through whom God delivers His promise. I want this to be a vision for your life that you can rest, that you can cease bearing, that you can stop treating God like a vending machine for your good-looking spouse and finally know Him as the one who sees you like He sees His Son, Jesus, completely whole, totally righteous, beautiful, lovely, even though all of your best efforts to be a good, beautiful person are like filthy rags to God. When he clothes you in Jesus, you are a sparkling white Rachel. So what do you do with this message? It's a good question. I'm going to give you two things. First, if you're single and you're looking for a spouse, or maybe you're married and you came into your marriage this way, Maybe you re- need to rethink the way you date or the rethink the way that you look at your spouse. So I'm going to ask you this: Single people? All the single people. Have you eliminated people from being a potential spouse because their physical appearance doesn't excite you? I don't think that's Christ-like. Perhaps every person you've written off because they are too good of a friend is exactly the criteria that you need to start building a marriage on. And trust me, because I know you're looking at me, and I know you've seen my wife. As beautiful as I think my wife is, it is not her looks that have kept me married to her for 15 years And honestly, her physical appearance isn't even what brings the strongest attraction to me anymore. Now, it's her dependence on Christ that drives her commitment to me. That's what I find sexy now about her. And that's, I mean, I know it sounds like a line, but it's as God-honest, truthful as I can be with you. It all fades. The spark fades. The attraction fades. It leaves, and it leaves quickly. Looks physical attraction they all go so if that is the case why would you make a, a foundational or at least primary criteria for a relationship that is why would you make that a criteria for a relationship that's supposed to last a lifetime when it doesn't do anything to make a marriage last a lifetime I think it's a question worth asking second please don't hear me proposing that you just let Jesus be your boyfriend and then it's all smiley happy day that's not true don't hear me saying that singleness can't be excruciating. And I can't even say that with empathy because I, I got married when I was 12. <laughs> but, but I do know and love people who have walked in it. And I'm, I'm not going to blow smoke and tell you that it's easy if you just love Jesus. It's not. It's hard. It's difficult, especially in the cultural milieu that we're in. and this is not my sermon on singleness, by the way, that's in a few weeks, and so if you're disappointed this was the single sermon, don't, all right, I got, we got more in a couple weeks. But I do want you to hear me saying today that whatever dream scenario you have for a future spouse will absolutely let you down. The grass is always greener, and that's why I counsel with as many married people who are in hellish marriages as I do single people who want to be in a marriage they think will save them. Because it's not greener on the other side, gang. When people hang their hopes on some other person, no matter how sexy they are, it all falls flat. So if you recognize, listen to me, if you recognize that your hope is located in marrying the right person, or perhaps you've been using God like Leah, perhaps you've missed the fact that you actually do already have the right person that has heard you, that has seen you, and that has attached himself to you by dying in your place to bring you into a relationship that lasts. If that's you, then don't ignore that today. If you've realized that, let's talk. And so here's what you can do with that today. You have cards in your seat. And today you said, listen, there's something about my life and the way that I approach relationships and even the way I'm approaching my marriage that's all twisted up in this relational idolatry. Maybe it stems from a dad that left you or a mom that left you or somebody that rejected you. The church is here to help you walk through that and learn how to walk faithfully with Christ in that to show you how Jesus is better. We want to do that, but we can't do that unless you tell us. We can't do that unless you let us know. So if you'll take that card and just write on there. I'd I'd like to talk. You can write that. That's what we've been doing in this series. Take your card, put your name on there. Your best contact information, unless you use Hotmail, don't put your Hotmail address, all right? Put that on your card, a way that we can contact you. You want us to text you, Facebook you, whatever, all right? Put that on you. Now, don't give me a Tinder or whatever, all right, but... Let us reach out to you. That's all you got to do. You put that in the thing as uh, in the in the offering bucket as it goes around. Your name and on the back, right? I want to talk or want to know more about following Jesus, and you can write in relationships, whatever it is, and we want to help you in that. Let me pray for you, Heavenly Father. There is too much on the line in relationships. Too many cosmic, divine, beautiful things that are on the line in how we treat one another, how we think of one another, how we love and respect one another, how we serve one another, and especially in the context of a relationship that's pursuing long-term commitment or in the marriages we already have. There's too much on the line for it just to be about looking good. And I pray that everyone who hasn't recognized what they're really searching for when they're looking for sex or even when they're looking for long-term commitment out of someone, I pray that today you've opened their eyes and that they will courageously, by your Spirit, respond and let us know by turning in one of those cards that just writing, I want to talk or I want to know more about following Jesus and so that we, someone from our church, can sit down with them and listen to their story and where they've been and, and where they've seen you or where, they, or where they have never seen you in their life. But we'll give them the courage today to write that down, and when the offering comes around, that they'll put that in there. Thank you, Father, for your unconditional love for us And I pray today that people will begin to hear you saying, I've heard you, I've seen you, and I've attached myself to you. Look at the death and resurrection of my son. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.